Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we're going to talk about God's wisdom, really in contrast to what the world calls wisdom. Have you ever had a dog look at you and tilt its head to the side? It's kind of a cute moment, and you're trying to get into the head of that dog, like, what, what are you doing? And I even looked into it this week. What does a dog mean when they tilt the head at you? And it can mean several things, but here's what it looks like it means when a dog tilts the head at you. It looks like they're saying, I'm listening, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm trying to figure you out, but I don't get you right now. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, with a biblical worldview, as we move about in the culture, we find our heads tilted a lot. The, the idiom we would use is we're scratching our heads. We, we hear some absurd things being promoted, even demanded in the culture, and we just cock our heads like, I, I don't know that I get you. I don't know where you're coming from. The most powerful and influential people in the world are promoting and demanding the most outlandish views and agendas. Many of your friends and many of your family members have already bought in, maybe been coerced into what we would see as an alternate reality. We live in a time where it seems to us that up is down and down is up. And we find ourselves in a passage today where God's going to talk to us about that very experience, this clash of worldviews that we're experiencing daily. And what we're going to see is this is really nothing new at all. In fact, aren't you glad God has given us a playbook to interact with times like these as his children? So 1 Corinthians 1, we find a passage where the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to contrast the very real wisdom of God with the mirror opposite in what the unbelieving world calls its wisdom. Now, let me remind you of the moral context of Corinth. It's remarkably like our own day. One scholar described Corinth like this. The city to which Paul came preaching the gospel was then a very cosmopolitan place. It was an important city. It was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. There was a pronounced tendency for its inhabitants to indulge their desires of whatever sort. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law, but his own desires. That scholar described first century Corinth, but at the same time, he described 21st century America. Did you catch these phrases? The reckless development of the individual. That's, that's the day in which we live. This, this idea of myself and whatever I proclaim myself to be, this is the generation in which we live. Or how about this line? The man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. That was first century Corinth. That's 21st century right here in Virginia. So I hope you see how relevant, once again, the Bible is speaking to the very issues we're facing right here in our time. And what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 1 is Paul is going to seek to recenter his church that he planted there on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gone adrift. He's going to bring them back, namely to the cross of Christ and God's wisdom on display there. So let's first, though, take on this clash of worldviews. And we pick up here in verse 18. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here in verse 18, Paul indicates that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And these two kinds of people see the world around them very differently. These two groups of people see the cross of Christ very differently. So how you view and respond to the cross of Christ determines which group you're in, whether you're perishing or whether you're being saved. So let me ask you, is the cross foolishness to you? Is the cross of Christ irrelevant to you? Then the Bible would say you're among those who are perishing. But this question, is the cross of Christ precious to you? When you think of Jesus dying for you and being raised, do you see that as the source of your life, even your eternal life? If so, then you're among those who are being saved. Now, the Corinthians had a problem that's all too common, still a problem in our day. The, the desire to have a belief in Christ while simultaneously thinking and operating like the unbeliever that you once were. And that was a Corinthian problem. It's not a new problem. In fact, Paul had to write the Romans about this in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. James wrote about it. He said, don't you know that, that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So let's take this on. Those who are perishing, they see the cross as foolish. I love how Paul is aware of that. Paul was not naive. Every place he went preaching, he knew, I'm gonna be preaching the truth of God's word, the wisdom of God, but an unbelieving world is gonna consider me ridiculous and crazy. In fact, in Athens, we have that occasion where he preaches there. And when he preaches about a crucified one and one who was raised, they said of Paul, we read about this in Acts 18, they said, he's a babbler. That's an insult. It says in the text, in the text there, they were mocking him, but some believed. In fact, every place Paul went, we saw that many people would ridicule him, even persecute him, but always there were some who would believe. And it was true in Corinth. Paul spent a year and a half there teaching this gospel. And we're told in Acts 18 that many believed, but most didn't. And many even angrily opposed him. But this is how it works. The gospel goes out. People have different reactions to the gospel. So let me ask you again, is the cross folly to you? Is it foolishness to you? Is this your perspective? I don't want to believe in Jesus because Jesus is not worth the cost that I have to pay if I followed him. Is this your heart? It would be foolish for me to give up my sin and the pleasure this sin is giving to me. 
Is this you? It would be foolish for me to surrender all and give up control of my life to Jesus. No, the wise thing for me to do is to seek my own happiness on my own terms. No, not the way of Jesus. The majority of people who are privileged to hear the gospel will respond that way. Foolishness. Not going to follow that. Let me remind you, don't follow the majority. Because the word of God says they are perishing. If you were out on a boat this afternoon off the coast of Virginia and your boat started to go down and somebody sent out the distress signal, then the boat's down, you're in the water and the Coast Guard came to you in a timely way. If you're wise, I know what you would do. You'd, you'd swim toward the rescue and you wouldn't swim away from the rescue. Even if everybody else in your party, they swam away from the boat rescuing. You, you think, what are you doing? That's craziness. It wouldn't matter to you how many people were swimming away from the rescue. You would not join them. You, even if you're the only one, you would swim toward the rescue. And spiritually, you need to do the same thing. The cross of Christ is where salvation is found. Jesus gave his righteous blood on the cross for you. He was raised from the dead. And he offers, if you come to him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. Now, why would unbelievers see the cross as foolish. Well, verse 22 tells us, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Paul mentions here, those of a Jewish background, like Paul himself was, that for many of them, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. So for, for many of his contemporaries, fellow Jews like Paul, they're thinking that that can't happen. You can't have a crucified Messiah because the idea of the Messiah was one who was going to come politically, maybe even militarily and give them deliverance from Rome. Crucified, there's no way. The whole Old Covenant scriptures talking about cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. So how can you have a cursed Messiah? Of course, they were overlooking places like Isaiah 53, where this Messiah was going to come and suffer for them to take the punishment for them. They missed it. So in their mindset, that's a foolish message that Paul and these other believers are preaching. But what about the Gentiles? Well, many of these from the Greek backgrounds, well, they also rejected. They thought the, the message of the gospel was foolishness. Remember, Paul says here, Greeks seek wisdom. So those in that culture in Corinth and across the Roman Empire, they were very impressed with intellectual arguments. They loved different philosophies and it needed to sound sophisticated for them to buy into it. They especially loved those great orators. If you could say something in a very impressive, persuasive way as an orator, well, now that's going to be impressive to us. The idea of a Jewish bloody Messiah would just not seem sophisticated enough for the Greek audience. But notice here, Paul is not intimidated by that. He's not even going to try to impress them on their terms. Maybe you remember what we saw last time in verse 17. Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Listen, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul said, I understand how the Greek mind works. But I'm not going to try to cater to them. I'm not going to try to fluff up my speech so that I can be more impressive. No, it's the cross of Christ. That's where the power is. And that's what the message is going to be. So to those who are perishing, the cross looks like foolishness. But then Paul makes this point. The cross is life for those who are being saved. I want you to notice with me that the difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom is the difference between pride and humility. 
those of us who are being saved, we operate from a position of humility. Our mindset is this, God has made us and we need him for salvation and really for all of life. But those who are perishing operate from inherent pride. Their mindset is this, I was not created and ultimately I answer to no one. We who are being saved, we understand our greatest need is for God's grace. We need his forgiveness. Therefore, the cross is wonderful news to us. That's where our sins were paid for. That's where they were atoned for. But those in the world, those who are perishing, they say the exact opposite. Their mindset is pride. I don't need a savior because I haven't done anything that wrong. In fact, I get to create my own identity my own reality, and I get to determine my own destiny. Do you hear the clash? These are incompatible. They're diametrically opposed. This, is, this, this can't be reconciled. So either the cross is life or the cross is foolishness. It's unnecessary. The cross is God's wisdom or the cross is a ridiculous waste. So really, we could summarize our biblical worldview in that statement, in that phrase, the cross of Christ. Because why is that cross necessary? Why is the cross life? Well, consider with me. This, this is all boiled down. Summarize in this statement, the cross of Christ. Remember, God made humanity. He made everything. He made this universe. We did not accidentally appear. And in that garden, God placed the first man and woman, and they sinned against God, and they broke everything. They broke their relationship with God. They broke their relationship with each other. All of humanity has now been under that brokenness, that curse. And yet God is stepping toward them to bring about reconciliation. So remember, in the old covenant, God gave them a law. The law was never going to reconcile them, but at least it did display God's reasonable and righteous standards. But what did humanity do with that good law? They broke it over and over again. They could not keep his reasonable law. Remember, in that old covenant, God also gave them that animal sacrificial system. That, and here was the point of that. For people to recognize sin has a cost of death. So remember, these animals were killed because of the people's sin. So an animal was killed, blood was shed, making the point. Here was the message. Sin leads to death. There needs to be blood to atone for sin. But all of that was, was to point to the ultimate sacrifice. When Jesus would come, a righteous one, born of a virgin, live perfectly. He would then die on a cross, dying because of sin. Shedding his blood to atone for sin. Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the way of salvation. There is no other gospel but this. And we must keep preaching that simple message. And that's what we see in Paul. Knowing that everybody in the world who, who are in unbelief see this as foolishness, what's he do? He doubles down on this. Verse 23 again. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross, the cross of Christ, that's the wisdom, that's the power of God. Listen, every other belief system, every other religion says you must work it out on your own. Some say you have to keep and try to perform five pillars. Some say that you have to try to improve your karma balance. It's not Christianity. Some say you need to try harder to be good enough. You need to work harder to make yourself worthy. Some say down the street, you need to get married in a special temple and keep a bunch of Mormon rules if you have a hope of being in paradise and being a God yourself one day. 
That's not Christianity. Amen. In fact, among the Mormon heresies is this statement. It starts out so good, but it goes off the rails. Listen to this. Mormons say, you're saved by grace after all that you can do. That's not Christianity. Saved by grace. Okay, we're tracking with you. Then it's gone. After all that you can do. Listen, you can't fix what you have broken. You need a rescue from Jesus. And that's what he did on the cross. When I was a boy, uh, I was in the home of a, a rich man. My, my parents, my grandparents rather, they retired in a lake community. And uh, so they lived across a little road, but across the road was Mr. Denning's house. He had actual lakefront property, a large, expansive home there. And Mr. Denning was very kind. He, he got wealthy as the owner of a chain of convenience stores in the Raleigh area. So I got to know Mr. Denning, you know, on those weekends he was there when I'd be visiting my grandparents. And so we could go into his house and we could shoot pool on his pool table downstairs in his house. And so I remember the day my stepbrother and I are, are shooting pool. And of course, a novice at shooting pool and I had terrible form, probably still do if I were to play. And so, you know, I, I'm shooting and I would rare, I'd bring the stick up fast. So I'd, I'd do one motion like that. Don't, don't do that if you ever shoot pool. <laughs> But what made that a problem is he had these globes, these light fixtures hanging low over the pool table. And so I'm shooting pool and I swing up like that and hit the white round globe and, and it didn't break. And I thought, oh, I don't know what I'd do. I told my stepbrother, I don't know what I'd do if I broke that thing. I'd feel so terrible. I'd feel, I'd feel horrible. And so we kept playing and another time I, I hit it. Didn't break. You know where this is going. <laughs> Third or fourth time. I'm shooting pool. I hit it. it. It shatters into hundreds of pieces. And, and I was shattered. I mean, I, I was terrified. Listen, I grew up on, literally, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. I can tell you that story another time. And so I, I've always had an inferiority kind of complex toward wealthy people. Like I don't belong in, in their presence, you know. And uh, so as a kid, I'm in this wealthy man's house. I already don't belong in a place like this. And now I've shattered something a wealthy man has I'm not proud of this, but it, it, it really messed me up. I, I climbed under the pool table and I'm sobbing and I don't know what to do. Finally, somebody went up and got Mr. Denning and he came down. He could not have been nicer. I remember him saying something like this to me. Hey, Jim, don't, don't worry. That's why they make replacements. I can get another one. Don't, don't worry. And he, he convinced me that he had it, that, that he obviously he could go buy another one and he knew where to go get another one and that there's no problem between us. He was so kind to me. Listen, I think about our sin. Our sin shatters our lives. We don't know it while we're in it. We just think we're doing what everybody does. We're blind. And, but we're wrecking ourselves and we're covering ourselves in guilt. And we can't fix it. But the cross is where God says, I will fix this for you. This is the wisdom of God. You can't make yourself good enough for me. But I can cleanse you. And I'm sending my son to a cross. He's going to die for you. He's going to be raised from the dead. Your faith needs to be in him. Trust in him. And you can be clean. You can be reconciled to me forever. And it's not by your works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. Hang on to that word boast in a moment. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments before we end. So we've been considering how we have a clash between the worldview of the world and God's wisdom. And today I would call you to choose the wisdom of God and to reject the wisdom of the world. Do you hear? You're at a fork in the road. Choose the wisdom of God. Reject the wisdom of this world. Notice Paul has a series of questions in verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? 
Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And how about this next question? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the wise and powerful in our age are displaying to us their foolishness. In fact, God is exposing their foolishness. And I just want to illustrate this to you in the most obvious of things that we're experiencing right now in the world. So the entertainers, the academics, the professional societies, they're all linked up. They're all in lockstep together in what I would call their moral madness. The influencers of our time have rejected Christ and their foolishness is seen in all that they affirm and in all that they demand. All of the so-called experts are asserting, even demanding, absurd things. And again, right now, most clearly we see this in their confusion on gender. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind with what I'm about to say next. We have genuine compassion for souls who are legitimately concerned, like they're, they're confused. I remember sitting down for lunch one time with a young man. It's probably been over 10 years ago before this became as prominent as it is. And we're having lunch together. He's a believer. And he tells me, he said, have you ever talked to somebody who feels like they're in the wrong body? And I said, I don't believe I have. And he said to me, I, I feel like that. And so here's a really broken young man across from me, not proud of it. He's, he's struggling. And so a lot of compassion. And I love what he said to me. He said, I, I'm not going to do anything about this, but I know that when I get to heaven, God's going to straighten all this out. God's going to fix this for me. And I, and I love that. I thought that was a great approach of faith. So, so then what I'm about to say, not unkind, but I just want to illustrate there's a clash of so-called wisdoms. There's what God has said. And then there's what our world is saying. And listen, it's very new what they're saying. So you consider the context of time here, just this generation that's making some absurd demands of us that we cannot agree with on here. So I looked up this week, how many genders are there, obviously, according to the world? And in, uh, you get various numbers when you Google that. And uh, one place, healthline.com, they say there are 68 identities and expressions. And I want to just illustrate how confused the world is at this very basic elementary point here. I want you to hear how convoluted and concocted it is. I spent time looking at it this week, and I want you to hear how newly invented, how newly coined these terms are. And some of them I can't even read out loud in a context like this because they're, they're vulgar. Even in the name of what they're saying, the identity is, there's profanity in it. But this is what the world is saying. I'm just saying God is exposing how foolish this is. So don't be intimidated. So, so here, listen, just some of these. I'm not going to do all 68. Gender fluid, gender expansive, gender queer, gender void, gray gender, intergender, masculine of center, novi gender, omni gender, pan gender. Some of those, I had never heard of those, and I had not either till this week. This is how rapidly changing and new things are added. You got to learn the term. So here's one novi gender. I thought, what is that? They define it on this website. People who use this gender identity experience having a gender that can't be described using existing language due to its complex and unique nature. And then omnigender, a non-binary gender identity that describes people who experience all or many gender identities on the gender spectrum simultaneously or over time. It's similar to pangender. The world says that's wisdom. The world says, you, you don't have a choice but to agree with that. 
And God's wisdom is diametrically opposed to that. This is confusion. Again, we have compassion because we have young people growing up who've been convinced this. They have been taught this. And so it's, we have compassion even for people who disagree with this right now because you can imagine the pressure they're under in the culture. So some, some people sincerely believe these things are true. Again, compassion. But it sounds like first century Corinth to me. The reckless development of the individual. It's all about self. What do I say about me, there's, there's pride in that. So aside from the, the tortured soul that we might meet one-on-one that we're being patient and talking with, we understand this cultural onslaught that's saying that they're wise when we see so clearly that's not wise. That's not true. That can't possibly be true. That this generation figured out all this and this multiplying list of terms is not possible because what, what did God say? We're just being humble and taking God at his word. First page of your Bible, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our biblical worldview is rooted in humility on all of these points. God has created us. He's given us our life. God has given us our identity. He's given us a savior to rescue us from our guilt and our shame to rescue us from our confusion and from all of these things. And notice here that God's not intimidated by a world that sees his views as crazy. God's not in heaven going, man, I, I don't know what to do. All the professional societies are disagreeing with my word. God's not concerned about that. God's not trying to impress the world. He has sent a savior to this world. Look at verse 19 again. Listen to the confidence of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So would you look with me at the cross of Jesus? And when I ask you, what is your choice? The wisdom of the world that mocks the cross and rejects the rescue or the wisdom of God that embraces the cross? Would you receive your savior? I can ask it this way. Where is your faith? Is your faith in these current foolish philosophies of the world? Is your faith in yourself? You think, I, I think I can figure this out on my own. Or is your faith in the cross of Christ? Or this question, how will you be right with God? There, there's your fundamental question. Everything else branches from that. How will you be right with God? Your faith is either in the cross of Christ where he gave his body and blood for you and in his resurrection, or there's some other system that you're gonna go after. Sadly, I spoke to a young man who who I've known for a number of years, and he'd been around the gospel. I thought he had believed the gospel, but he let me know in the last several weeks that he's no longer considering himself a Christian. And he's now turned to another world religion where he believes he can follow a certain set of rules and make himself worthy to God. He said, it just doesn't seem fair to me that you can live your life as a sinner all your days and then toward the end, put your faith in Jesus and really be forgiven. So he pivoted away from the gospel of the cross to a system where he says, I'll, I'll be able to justify myself through my own behavior. That's another contrary wisdom. That's foolishness. It will lead to destruction. I pray that this young man will turn back to Christ that he's heard about. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Like Paul, you and I need to believe in the cross of Jesus. And we need to proclaim only the cross of Jesus. God's going to call people to himself through this gospel. We don't have to try to change the message in order to get a hearing, in order to see people come to Christ. Paul was confident in his message. 
you should be confident in as well. God is calling people to himself. Now, what kind of people does he call? This is where we'll close. Look at verses 26 and following. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You should underline that. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So how is it that you came out of this confusion that you were in? And now you are in the wisdom of God. You now understand that you should trust in Jesus. How did that happen? God initiated that. God came to you. Don't you love that language of calling? God called out to you. You called out to him eventually, but he was calling out to you and he's chosen you to be a part of his people. And notice the type of people he chooses. We might try to counsel God. God, you know, more people would follow you if you save some more celebrities, you save a few more athletes, you save a few more politicians. People won't think we're so foolish if you get some high and mighty people to join in. And God saves some of those. But not many, notice he says to the Corinthians, not, not many of you were from noble birth. Not many of you were considered smart when you became a believer. God's not trying to impress the world. He's offering a savior for the world. And that savior's name is Jesus Christ. All of this so that we would not boast in ourselves, but that we would boast in what our God has done for us. Again, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Today, would you make that your only boast? I'm trusting Jesus. I have no good works to commend myself before God. I'm not worthy. I've received rescue from Jesus who gave his righteous blood on the cross, was raised from the dead. I will only boast in what Jesus did for me. Is that you today? That's how you will become a follower in Jesus. Humble yourself today and recognize I've been on the wrong track. I've been trusting in the wrong things. I've been trusting in myself and my ability to, to be good enough. You have to lay that down. Repent of that. Trust only in Jesus. And listen, refuse to be intimidated in this culture. You don't have to try to impress the world around you. Be like Paul. Here's, here's my message. Christ and him crucified. That's my hope. Whether you think I'm sophisticated or not, it doesn't matter. The power is in Christ. The power's in this gospel. And this is the hope. Speak the truth in love in this culture. Can I remind you, you yelling at people about these issues we brought up today, not going to change any minds. How does a person have a change of mind about these fundamental, this fundamental conflict of truth? It's through the gospel. You preaching Christ and lovingly, patiently, helping confused people understand that there's a God who loves them, gave his son for them. Then he's going to open up their eyes. Them trusting in Christ will unlock wisdom for them that they currently can't get no matter how frustrated you are. It's not going to be your debating ability that's going to do this. It's through the gospel of Christ. So let's preach this gospel to people. Well, I want to close with this. Mercy Me years ago wrote a song called Crazy. In fact, you can YouTube it or go on Spotify this afternoon. They have another song, Crazy Enough. It's probably fine too. But, but the song I want to quote you is the one called Crazy. It's a beautiful song. I'm not going to sing it to you. 
because I love you. I'm not going to sing. But in my head, the melody is going to be rolling around as I read you these lyrics. And it, it's obvious to me that they were, they were studying 1 Corinthians 1 when they wrote this song because it fits so nicely. Hear this as we close. They write this. Why would I spend my life longing for the day that it would end? Why would I spend my time pointing to another man? Isn't that crazy? How can I find hope in dying with promises unseen? How can I learn your way is better in everything I'm taught to be? Isn't that crazy? And then the chorus. I've not been called to the wisdom of this world, but to a God who's calling out to me. And even though the world may think I'm losing touch with reality, it would be crazy to choose this world over eternity. And if I boast, let me boast of filthy rags made clean. And if I glory, let me glory in my Savior's suffering. Isn't that crazy? And as I live this daily life, I trust you for everything. And I will only take a step when I feel you leading me. Isn't that crazy? Then back to the chorus. I've not been called to the wisdom of this world, but to a God who's calling out to me. And even though the world may think I'm losing touch with reality, it would be crazy to choose this world over eternity. He ends the song just saying, call me crazy. You can call me crazy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that exposes us to your wisdom. And we, we live daily in the clash between what you say and what a desperately confused age says. Lord, we choose you. Lord, we see your wisdom. We see your love in the cross of your son, Jesus. We see our salvation there and nowhere else. And so, Lord, in these moments, we who know you, we who are being saved by you, we just profess all over again, we choose you and not any wisdom of the world. Lord, I thank you that you're working by your spirit now, convincing others of that same move. Lord, I pray that you'll call people to make a, a pivot, pivot away from all these false things they've been chasing and trusting to now come back to your wisdom for the rest of their lives, trusting in you only, following after you. God, would you do that gracious work of saving today? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.